Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening. And I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate now to the show notes for this episode, where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where fine podcast products are available. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so more people can find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate here at Acton. And for only the second time ever, we're joined by a special guest, author of the great new book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, the founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group, David Bonson. David, thank you so much for joining us today. So nice to be with you again. Today, we're going to talk about the January 6th show, and you may have missed this, but there was a assassination attempt on Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, you may not have heard about that, and that'll be part of what we're talking about. But first, uh, let's go up, up like the new inflation numbers that are just recently out, hitting 8.6% in May, the highest in 40 years. Uh, the Federal Reserve is widely expected this week to raise interest rates by half a percentage point. Uh, there are, according to the piece that I read this morning in the Wall Street Journal, uh, warning signs of higher unemployment. So I want to remind people the uh, trilogy that makes up stagflation is high inflation, slow economic growth, and high unemployment. And uh, I'm not an economist, nor do I play one on a podcast, but it, it seems to me that we may be dangerously approaching those three things. That's one of the reasons that we have David on this morning and want to talk to him. David, tell us what is going on with inflation in this country right now. Well, let me start with the stagflation comment you made, particularly the sort of trifecta of indicators and focus on that unemployment one, because this is where I'm taking an incredibly nonpartisan and apolitical approach to the subject. Now, Acton Institute's about as good as it gets at doing the same in economic analysis. My obsession with economic theory is divorced from my childhood obsession with politics, which is slowly becoming an adult contempt for politics. But the fact of the matter is that I think most stagflation talk is more political than economic. And yet it can be prophetic. It can be predictive. But out of respect for history and the uh, genuine pain of the 1970s, let's remember that the unemployment rate in 1976 was 7.7%. And it stayed there for the bulk of the decade, something with a six or seven handle. It's less than half of that now. Okay, that amounts to population-adjusted millions more people employed now with millions of job openings now. Now, did the weekly jobless claims go from 200,000 to 210,000? Yes, they did. On the margin, if you get a four-week average moving higher, that starts to become, I think, a leading indicator. But the um, continuing jobless claims are at a 50-year low at around 1.3 million. So I think we need to have a robust talk here about inflation, what's going on, what's causing it, what can solve it, all those things. And I do believe that the Fed can break something 
and um, we could head into a recession. And there's a lot of debate about how mild versus severe it would be and how long it would last and what's already priced in and not priced in. But I think when we look at the present conditions, all I'm saying is you really can't get a recession at 3.6% unemployment. You really do have wages rising. And I think it's important to mix all of that economic stew together when we talk about things like recession and stagflation. So I'm let me ask you this. Since you just brought up the unemployment numbers. You know, I'm I'm a marketing hack who occasionally talks on a podcast here. So when I look around Grand Rapids, I just got done with uh, about three weeks of traveling. I was in D.C. I was in New York. I was in Nashville. Um, and I still see businesses that are looking to hire people. So we have this low unemployment rate. Uh, we seem to have a whole lot of job opportunities available. Um, you have those unemployment claims that you just mentioned rising somewhat, you know, not a huge jump in numbers and all of that. Um, makes sense for me, the job market right now, where we still seem to have, again, despite the the low unemployment numbers, a whole lot of people with, um, you know, jobs open and it, it still seems to me that there should be a lot of people you know, jumping at those opportunities. And we're, it still strikes me that we're not seeing it. Well, I, I mean, we definitely are seeing some people who had classified themselves as permanently unemployed, particularly in the 21 through 29 age category, now starting to go back about 100,000 people that, told, that said they were not looking for a job that now either are looking or found one. Um, I think that's one of the bright sides to this crypto meltdown is some, uh, my suspicion is that there were people feeling kind of uh, cocky about their uh, need for employment in lieu of their digital asset appreciation that now are maybe looking uh, for work. Um, but you're exactly right. There are a lot of employers still looking for work. And I think this does come down to the um, anthropology that, that Acton believes about the very nature of economics. The reason I think employers starting to shed jobs is the ultimate forward indicator of recession is because I believe humans act. And I don't believe that there's a single person on television, and I include myself in that list, or anyone who can look at backward statistics, the vast majority of which are classic lagging indicators, like consumer confidence. Like what could possibly be more backward looking and what it indicates than something that the consumer is saying? Um, however, the employers who are themselves enjoying time and place circumstances in their respective businesses, they can see uh, either bright lights into the future or the clouds and fog of problems coming in. And one of the first things they tend to cut or slow down on with their own sort of natural instinct and organic understanding of economic conditions in their business is employment. So when employers are accelerating hiring, it's very difficult for me, knowing what I know about incentives and human action, to, to connect that to recession, when employers start to cut, which very well could happen, it, there, there could be enough credit tightening that it does uh, sort of reverse this tide. My, my only comment is right now, it's not only not happening, it's not even close yet. The opposite is still the case in the employment aspect of what employers, entrepreneurs, companies 
are saying through jobs uh, activity. Sam, I, I want to go to you. I want to ask you a question. I feel I asked you a month ago when we were talking about this issue the last time, which is, as I mentioned, the Federal Reserve is expected to raise interest rates by a half percentage point this week. Uh, how confident are you that the Federal Reserve will do a good job in dealing with the problem of inflation that we are facing right now? Uh, <clears throat> I suspect uh, you won't be surprised to hear me say that I I don't have a high degree of confidence in this particular Federal Reserve, or at least the people who are on the FOMAC committee right now, which is the committee of the Federal Reserve that basically sets interest rates. Um, I don't see any particular signs of uh, people there who, who would be described as monetary hawks who see this as a priority in the sense that uh, – the, federal, the Fed's mandate, of course, is, is a dual mandate. And at the moment, they're focusing upon the uh, inflation part of the stable money part of that mandate. I'd like to think that they'll continue uh, to do so. But the people who are on the, on the Fed right now, that's not where most of them come down on these types of things. I, I think one of the reasons they are reacting the way that they are reacting right now, or at least are projecting that they may even this week raise raise the uh, um, interest rates, is because the this this consumer price index and what's happening with it and the sharp rises that we're seeing in prices are pretty broad based across the economy. So the increases in May were driven in part by pretty sharp rises in prices for energy, which are up something like almost 35% from last year, and groceries, which are up to something like 12% from last year. And that people are really noticing this. But at the same time, if you look across the economy, um, you see the prices are raising, are going up everywhere. So it's a very broad-based thing, which sort of, sort of, I think, upsets the narrative that this was caused by Putin or the types of explanations we're hearing from the White House about what's happening in the economy right now. So I think that the, sh the, the, the sheer scale in terms of the broadness of inflationary increases that are going on right now, that gives the Federal Reserve a fair amount of cover to engage in uh, continuing to engage in the interest rate increases that they have said that they're going to do. And to David's point about the unemployment number, that gives the Fed a fair amount of cover, right? Because the fear, of course, is that if you increase interest rates, it's going to suck, suck credit out of the economy, which means businesses won't expand, which means that employers be more reluctant to take on people, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's part of the calculus that goes on. But because the unemployment rate is so low right now, if the Fed is going to be aggressive, now would be the time to do it. So I think circumstances and conditions are probably pushing the Fed to do what I think is the right thing to do. Uh, but this is not where most of them are naturally inclined when it comes to thinking about the role of monetary policy in a modern dynamic economy like the United States. Most of the people there are are very much on the sort of, well, employment is the priority. Employment, part of the mandate, is the important side of things. 
And with the people that President Biden has appointed or tried to appoint to the board, the, the Federal Reserve Board, I mean, that all points in that particular direction of a decidedly uh, dovish Fed that is being pushed by circumstances and conditions to do things that, uh, you know, in other circumstances they probably wouldn't want to do. So one of the interesting things is we're, we're talking here in aggregates and we've disaggregated that a little bit when we've talked about the human person in terms of employment. Um, part of the employment picture, what you see is you saw a tremendous transition of people out of certain domains of employment during the pandemic, hospitality, restaurants. We had industries that were very much more regulated that um, were affected much more dramatically by COVID policies than others. And, you know, people have obligations. They have plans and they transition out of industries. Everyone I know is hiring in the restaurant industry. Everyone is still looking for people. It's, you know, there are there is a general labor market tightness, but there are also particular sectors of the economy that are particularly affected. And Sam points to the inflation, the particularly the energy driving a lot of this. And part of this part of this is geopolitical. Part of it is the result of government policy. We talked about, I think, a couple weeks ago about food shortages in Sri Lanka and rising food prices. Well, that was linked to a particular policy against petrochemical-based fertilizers that the government of Sri Lanka had implemented before um, all of these all of these sort of global economic problems um, that cascade into this. So there are individual sort of interventions that have exacerbated both the labor market tightness in some sectors as well as inflation driven by certain sectors of the economy where we see especially large uh, rising prices. David, the part of this whole story that you know, I, I and I appreciate the the pushback on you know the nineteen seventies analogies that we're all making. Um, it just it seems the natural place to go when we're talking about uh, high gas prices, when we are talking about inflation. It's where a lot of Americans' brains naturally default. Um, but the the real wild card in all of that, right, is that we are still while while we've gotten back to living our lives in a way that puts COVID in the rearview mirror. The tale of the impact of the decisions that were made during the pandemic are still very much with us. Um, how do you see our recovery from the interruptions in supply chains that? In, happened largely because of decisions that were being made rather than more natural factors. How are we moving along and recovering from the COVID policies impact on our economic conditions? Yeah, that, it's a wonderful question. And there's so much to unpack there because I am of the school of thought that um, there is a lot of governmental error that is behind some of the price inflation we're experiencing now. And yet I refuse to join the chorus that says it's because all government spending is inherently inflationary. Like we can run the national debt up from 10 trillion to 30 trillion and get no inflation to speak of. But then once Biden passes a, a $1.9 trillion spending bill, then it became 
inflationary or as if Japan's 250% debt to GDP, which has been radically deflationary for 30 years, um, is somehow a counterfactual. I believe that there's governmentally caused inflation, but that it comes out of what you're bringing up now, which was largely the impact to the supply side of the economy the labor shortages that were incentivized by the extended federal unemployment benefits, the um, regulatory apparatus that allowed us to ever get to a point where we were so reliant on um, the ports that there was not better incentives to get people back to work at the Long Beach uh, port um, uh, and up and down both east and west coast. The um, 40,000 people that stopped being truck drivers right when we most needed them. I can go on and on. There is a lot of governmental overlap with this and a lot of it that was a hangover out of COVID, but there's no bigger factor, none, than them underestimating the demand surge. The demand surge was not primarily caused because some people got one the government stimulus checks. I didn't get a government stimulus check, and I went on as many vacations as I could find time to get on a plane for once they allowed us to travel again. If my wife and I could fly out for an afternoon, we would have done it. You know what I'm saying? There was a huge pent-up demand because humans act, and humans were imprisoned for a long time in their homes and wanted to get back to restaurants, bars, um, coffee shops, vacations, hotels, and that's what you're seeing. He described it perfectly. They're trying desperately to hire more in the hospitality sector and food and beverage. That's a demand surge. But we know that inflation is too much money chasing too few goods and I'll add services. And that's the problem. On the supply side, the goods and services were inadequate to meet the demand surge. But you know what? Consumption of oil right now daily is the same as it was in 2019. The demand side of oil is not why we have $120 oil. It has come back up, and yet our supply particulars are more geared towards $50 oil. How could that possibly be? Well, we know why. Limitations on production, the ESG uh, extremism, uh, pressure in capital markets for them to not invest in more production. Um, I I, I don't think, Sam and I disagree on it, but I will say Putin is a factor here. I don't agree with the Biden administration blame casting it or pretending like there was no energy inflation before Putin. But look, goods inflation has disinflated the last three months. The core inflation rate, it's still very high and going high and staying high, but it was lower. It's headline inflation because of food and energy that hit 8.6 on Friday. Now, guess what? People eat and drive. So headline inflation matters. I'm just simply pointing out that we have the highest concentration of inflation in areas that are supply-oriented. And I honestly believe that the Fed could raise rates to 5% tomorrow, and it wouldn't make a whisker of difference in the areas of food and energy that I'm describing as problematic. So the COVID policies were done wrongly to begin with, and then the um, kind of normalization out of it was massively misunderstood. And not, not by the way, just by governmental bureaucrats and, and so forth. Um, a lot of people, including in financial markets, miss 
uh, uh, underestimated the reality of human action. People wanted their lives back, and the supply-demand imbalance has been something to behold. And then now we still have been, at least for last quarter, I think it changes into Q3, but um, China's uh, just utterly insane. Zero COVID policy and lockdowns in Shanghai and Beijing in Q2 had a huge impact into supply chain yet again, even past our own supply chain deficiencies of late last year. So uh, some people have a hard time learning these lessons, I guess. David, I think, highlights an important distinction that we should make. As you know, I mentioned David's book when I was introducing him, uh, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, right? So I think that we all believe that there is uh, – a truth about the economy and the way the economy works that underlines all of this. But the problem is, is that it then gets filtered through a very political lens. Um, so I remember David and I talking, I think, back in uh, November, October or November about how it is completely sensible for Republicans to make the argument that it was the actions of Democrats that led to inflation because that is the politically advantageous argument to make. But it, as I think David has pointed out, that um, doesn't necessarily mean that it was, you know, we ran up the, the, the debt from 10 trillion to 30 trillion and it was just, you know, that one straw on the camel's back of the last actions of the early part of the Biden administration that, that broke it. Although I think we probably all agree that um, this, adding just that much more spending was probably not a great idea at the time and not something that we should have engaged in. So the question to me now is, um, it, it looks like, you know, and, and as a guy who used to run political campaigns, trying to read the tea leaves of what is coming up in November, uh, it looks bad for Democrats. Like you never want to be in, in the political game of musical chairs. You never want to be the one left standing up at the time where you've got inflation going on like this because people are going to punish you. Voters are going to punish you severely for a bad economy in a way that so directly impacts their lives. And again, I feel Sam, I feel I keep asking you the cynical questions here, so I'm going to do it one more time. <laughs> will uh, will politicians, Republicans, Democrats, either or learn any real meaningful lessons from what we'll experience here? Or are we like just bound for another cycle of what I feel like we've been experiencing for more than 20 years now, where irrespective of economic, foreign policy, social culture war circumstances, one party gets into power, it does tries to do way too much of everything that it ever desires to do immediately. Voters react adversely, kick them out and put the other one in. We get these wide pendulum swings of political power that at the end of the day leave almost no one truly satisfied with the state of the country. Is, are, is there any reason to be hopeful that any meaningful lessons will be learned from what has been experienced over the last couple of years and with um, you know a political rebuke to to the party in power, anything meaningful will change. Well, that's been the cycle, hasn't it, for, the, yes. for a couple of decades now. You have <clears throat> presidents and administrations elected. Two years later, the other party gets a relatively big swing to it in the Congress. They get the Congress, the House of Reps, and as well as the Senate, and then you're stuck with two more years. Then you have a presidential election. I mean, we go through this, we've been through this cycle a number of times now. 
but is uh, is it likely that the political class is going to learn anything from this? Well, the indications would be no, because this is not the first time we've been at this rodeo. They they seem to resort to the same type of behaviour that they always seem to resort to. And that's partly because the incentives are there, right? Because <clears throat> the type of discussion we're having about inflation right now, which I think is nuanced, which is paying attention to different factors that are contributing to our inflationary problems, which would acknowledge, for example, that if we're going to talk about the Biden administration's spending packages and the way that that may have tipped the balance and helped to facilitate an inflationary uh, outbreak, we shouldn't forget that the Trump administration was doing the same thing (laughs) in its last year in power, right, in terms of big spending bills being passed by Congress. So, uh, so, the political class, I think, in some respects, just keeps repeating its, this type of behaviour, partly because the political incentives are there to do so. You won't see Republican Republicans running for office this year talking about, they'll be talk, certainly talk about some of the, I think, very bad policies of the Biden administration uh, when it comes to spending, but they won't talk about the fact that the Trump administration were also in the big spending class, Right, <laughs> I didn't. I don't remember any particular spending cuts happening during the Trump administration, and we saw during the first year of COVID, they in- injected large stimulus bills into the economy as well. So the incentives are part of the problem, and and to have a type of nuanced discussion of the type that we're doing now, well, what that tells us is that is that there's lots of different factors that are involved in the current inflationary uh, outbreak. It tells us that mistakes were made by, I think, I think some serious monetary policy mistakes were made by the Federal Reserve. I think some serious spending mistakes were made by uh, two administrations when it comes to the current uh, dilemmas that we find ourselves facing. As David has pointed out several times, we have this pent-up demand which is driving things and we have a weakness on the supply side of things. So that's part of the factor. But that's not going to win you elections to have discussions about these things, right? That's not going to get people to go and vote for you. That's not going to energize lots of bases of parties to go out and vote. They want to hear that the other people are completely and fully responsible and our side has nothing to do with it. So <clears throat> until that type of cycle is broken and there is a willingness to accept responsibility, which strikes me as a major problem that's now characterizing not just um, – the political class, we sort of expect that from them. But even even um, the way that the Federal Reserve has been talking about this. So I, I was fascinated um, when the, the, the Fed chair started saying things like, well, we're going to retire the use of the phrase transitory. Well, what does that mean? Uh, are you saying we got it wrong, but we don't want to say that? I mean, this this type of doublespeak, I think, only encourages people to be very cynical about the way that senior public officials are dealing with some of these types of problems. I was, I was struck when Janet Yellen, remember, she said she got it, she, she, she said, well, I got some things wrong. I was struck by that because, okay, wow, she actually admitted publicly that she got something seriously wrong. Now, in my view, in another world, people who get seriously things seriously wrong and who are in public office should resign. But 
They don't, because that's the other flip side of the responsibility thing, right? You, there's accountability, and there's not a lot of accountability being enforced or even expected now across large swathes of the American public square. And that's a broader political problem that I think underlies many of these economic challenges. If you want a quick symbol of the frivolousness of our political times, you invoked Janet Yellen there. So I will just give you a headline that I saw uh, yesterday, which was uh, Janet Yellen, who is the Treasury Secretary of the United States of America at the middle of circumstances that we have been describing for the first uh, 28 minutes of this program, uh, pushed back against the idea that we were heading into a recession. And the figure who had said we were going to be heading into a recession, she pushed back against, is Cardi B, the rapper. Um, which it there there is just something... You know, I, I'd be laughing if I wasn't crying for the fact that uh, the person, the chosen person to push back against here um, is a rapper who, uh, while she may be a wonderful person, I don't know her, uh, probably doesn't know a whole heck of a lot about the economy. But something else that Sam pointed out that I, I think was particularly interesting is there is that they're going to retire the phrase, uh, the term transitory, right? There's this very academically informed concept that if we can change the way that we talk about some of these things, we actually change the thing itself. That if we describe it in a different way, it is not the same problem that it was before. Um, I think we see this in a whole lot of parts of American life that if we just change the way that we talk about it. It's not the same problem anymore. And it doesn't change the underlying fundamental truths of it, which I think was part of the question I was asking Sam. That is like there is there there is an underlying reality to the economy. And then there is the way that it gets interpreted through political rhetoric. And, you know, it's not a, it's not all that often that those two things meet. Yeah, you've got a very interesting way of talking about this that you see um you see this this obfuscation. You also see it with all of the causes we addressed. You know, you know, there are certain things with supply chain disruptions with the war in Ukraine that are certainly real and reverberate in the economy. But the idea that Putin is this is this is this personal figure who is doing this to spite the United States or to hurt the Biden administration, when or that you, they can hang all inflation and and really all economic problems on Vladimir Putin and just on Vladimir Putin. When you have Elizabeth Warren blaming food prices on the machinations of Big Turkey around Thanksgiving, <laughs> this is because there are concrete policy proposals that could be entertained with the aim to lowering prices that are economically informed that could be um, in a in a just a slightly different world, <laughs> largely bipartisan. Um, things like, um, you know, you know, some uh, regulatory reforms in the energy sector where we are facing real supply constraints right now, things having to do with the regulation of international trade about the way that our ports function to get them back up running at capacity. There's a lot that politicians can't control with this, but there are some very simple if unglamorous things that could be done to actually make this situation better and to move us towards 
you know, a stabilization in prices. And, and, and policy thinking that, you know, extends further than, you know, the individual's nose. I, I remember 15 years ago, back when I did public affairs work, working with a client who was advocating for the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. And one of the arguments that was always offered in response to that is, you know, even when gas prices were going up, well, even if we started, you know, even if we went full bore on that today, right, it's not going to change the current circumstances. Yes, agreed. But that's not really the point, is it? It's one, because at some point in the future, when you have a system like that up and running, um, you will be delivering more oil and natural gas to places that is refined and turned into energy. And also, as I'm, I'm sure you know, David would be able to talk about as well with, uh, with the market, um, you're sending signals of what is to come in the future. And people who are making uh, choices in capital markets, I presume, this is not my area of expertise, are thinking about, well, you know, how does current policy impact what the future is going to look like? And if they think that if you're thinking that there is going to be uh, you know, the construction of this pipeline and then the impact that comes from the construction of this pipeline, people's decision making processes are going to change as a result of those policy changes. Well, that, that's exactly right, and it and it's more than just the signal to the market. Um, it's a sort of cultural milieu that has happened in the energy sector. <clears throat> the Biden administration specifically stopped drilling on federal land, stopped approving new lease permits, st- uh, made the headline announcement about the Keystone Pipeline. And one of the criticisms I have of those of us on the right, when we focus on like, well, the Fed's creating inflation or they blocked Keystone. There's this um, kernel of truth to this, and it becomes uh, important to focus on and certainly politically beneficial. But then what often happens is I think we miss the rest of the forest for that singular tree. When we say they blocked Keystone and the left says that wasn't going to make a difference for many years in transporting oil and gas from Canada, what we then lose track of when we focus on Keystone is what about right now, new permits and projects not being approved in Oklahoma or in West Texas? What about right now, uh, the European authorities that were not approving the receipt of liquefied natural gas into terminals and um, therefore are export capacity was not being prepped for not only the ability to avoid inflation in a Putin-led war in Ukraine, but for just a growth opportunity to have a more environmentally sensible and economically beneficial uh, byproduct, us liquefying natural gas and selling it to Asian and European allies is an incredibly missed opportunity. So I never want to focus on just one angle. And this is to kind of come back to some stuff Sam had said earlier. It's my biggest concern right now around the Fed is I have a generational criticism that's not limited to right now and the CPI, that the Fed distorts markets, that the Fed creates a boom-bust cycle and then exacerbates it and ultimately gets a diminished return from it and leads us into Japanification. Um, The Bank of Japan makes our Fed look like the most hawkish, tight central bank on the planet. And Japan has nothing but deflation to show for it. I believe we need to critique the Fed holistically. Not that they got it wrong, that they never should have tried to get it right. That they lack the knowledge to use an interest rate 
and the cost of capital to manipulate the economy and try to neuter business cycle reality. That's my critique of the Fed. And so at one point in time, we get inflation. Another point in time, we get deflation. But more importantly, we have a Fed that is much too large for what we've asked it to do as a society. And that is not just Democrats. That's Republicans. And it's not just Wall Street. It's Main Street. Find someone out on Main Street right now that doesn't think the Fed's just going to sort of wave a wand when everybody believes the Fed has this magic potion that they don't have. And so I just really am focused right now in this moment on those. See, that's the beauty of podcast, Eric, is when you go on Fox, you have three minutes and you go on CNBC, you have three or four minutes, right? That We talked about nuance in these policy topics. You can get them in podcasts. We can get them at symposiums and conferences and discussions we do, trying to be more thoughtful, trying to really challenge people to think around a worldview of these things. It's very tough to do in Twitter and in and television media. But I will say this, um, we are being given an opportunity to reframe conversation about generationally important topics in both fiscal and monetary policy. I want to move on to our Next topic, and I think we can combine the next two topics. So we talked about uh, the economic circumstances that are underlying uh, American life right now. And I, I think we all probably agree that we live in a, a fairly unsettled time in American life. And uh, certainly living through inflation like this is, um, again, to not draw direct analogies to the 1960s is something that we really have not dealt with since the 1960s. Um, and I think it affects the way that Americans think about this kind of stuff and think about their lives, right? I, I heard this great point from John Podhoritz uh, about driving, where you know you've got a little less than a half tank of gas left, and you'd normally wait till you got under a quarter of tank before you would fill up. But you know you start to think, I don't know what the price of gas is going to be by the time I need to fill it up, so I should probably just fill up now. And it changes the way that people think about it, um, and it changes their actions and behavior as a result of all of that. One of the other stories that I think is is still lingering back there. Um, so again, to while we don't deal all that much with politics, you know what the two parties are going to be talking about as we're moving towards November. Republicans are largely going to be talking about the first subject matter we've dealt with on this show, the economic problems that the country is facing. And what the Democrats are going to try to talk about is what was talked about on Monday evening, which was January 6th. And we got this televised committee hearing in the evening um, on what happened on January 6th, uh, the release of some new footage. Uh, and by all accounts, uh, a larger group of people watched this, and I think a lot of people were expecting, and there was over 20 million people tuned in to watch this televised primetime hearing. So I'm just going to throw this question out to the group, and anybody who wants to, to uh, chomp on it is welcome to. Um, one, did you watch any or all of the hearings on Monday night? And two, how much, if at any, do you think what happened on January 6th in 2021 is going to matter in November of 2022? Well, if I might uh, start, I watched precisely five minutes of the hearings and turned off. <clears throat> Not because I don't think that what happened on January the 6th was serious. It was very serious. Not because I thought that we don't need an investigation into this. We obviously do need 
an investigation into this. But the reason I tuned out and turned it off is because I have, first of all, very little confidence that um, this committee is going to pursue this in a way that's genuinely non-partisan. The second thing is uh, it's it's hard to sort of deny that at least part of the reason for putting this up in such a very public way, <clears throat> you know, in the evening at night, most of these types of hearings start at 10 o'clock in the morning in Washington, D.C., when few of people are obviously watching television. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a show, and I think it's at least partly motivated on the part of some people, not all, but some people, by a desire to distract the country from the very, very serious economic and political challenges that it's having right now. Uh, I think that most people have already made up their minds about what happened on January January the 6th. Uh, They've already factored it into how they're planning to vote uh, come come later this year. So I I have to say, I'm not cynical about the process, but I think that it is governed as much by some of the political considerations that we've already talked about this morning. And I'm not trying to be cynical about this. I just think that this happens to be part of the reality. Now, and of course, it will be fueled by the more that um, President Trump and some of his closest supporters insist on keeping talking about an election that happened a year and a half ago. So, I mean, they're bought into as much of the desire to revisit these events and the, the, the whole thing surrounding January the 6th as a significant number of people on the left. So, do I think it will substantially affect things come November? I, I, I doubt it. Um, do I think that it's going to change much of the political dynamics? I doubt it. I'm not even sure what they're going to come up with in terms of are they going to recommend prosecution of Donald Trump or and or people around him for conspiracy to overturn the election results of 2020? Maybe they'll come up with something like that, but we just don't no, and we then and then what happens? Who takes up such a recommendation? Is it prosecutors in a particular part of the country? Is it judges? I mean, all those things I think become very, very open to question and are very, very uncertain at this point in time. Yeah, I, I mostly agree with Sam. The only thing I would say is I don't think it's that the um, Trump administration and and people surrounding Trump particularly uh, President Trump himself, have been almost as focused on January 6th and election-related issues as this committee and the left. I think they've been far more so. And so my call is not just for this committee to stop with the theatrics and the melodrama and allow us to sort of move past it. I agree 100% that these things are entrenched, that people um, that are already have one particular belief about the issue one way or the other could get more animated in their view, but not come out of it with a changed view. But I would just simply apply this uh, bi-directionally that I think it behooves as many people as possible on the right to plead with people on the right to move past the events of 2020, to focus on the economy, to focus on foreign policy, to focus on the insanity of critical race theory, to focus on cancel culture, 
there are elements that matter to people, that matter to our society right now. And those elements do not include unproven conspiracy theories. And it's not that someone is saying, I don't think any fraud did or didn't happen. It's that one is saying it isn't proven. It, it can't be proven. We just simply have to move on. And I think that's the best thing for the country and most certainly the best thing for the political prospects of the Republican Party. So I did not watch the hearings. I do think it matters. I do think that um, that uh, there you know is some more clarity that will come, not about um, whether or not the events of January six were President Trump's culpability or not. You know, I don't think the DOJ can really take up charges there, and if they do, they really will help him. They'll make him more of a martyr, much like Twitter kicking Trump off helped him in that sense. But I more think that it's interesting to hear that other people in his circle, Kellyanne Conway, Bill Barr, Ivanka Trump, Jason Miller, perhaps Bill Stepien, campaign manager, that they told him, you lost. I think that's interesting, but I don't think it's changing any minds at all. And I think that the Republican Party would really help itself to focus on issues at hand. The one quick thing that I will say about the, the show element of all of this. And they had uh, this committee had hired uh, James Goldston, who was a former TV news chief to help make this into the production that it was. And, you know, if there were uh, an entirely unofficial act and unwind drinking game, uh, one of the things would be if I invoke Yuval Levin and I'm going to invoke Yuval Levin, which is the problem of so much of the work of Congress being in public. there is there is just a change in behavior when the cameras are on. Anybody who has ever watched a bit of reality television knows that. And that's not to say that a presentation, a meaningful presentation of this to the American people couldn't be made. But as I think about to the, the last kind of an incident, and again, I'm not making a direct comparison between these two things, but just bear with me. The last incident that produced a, any kind of a committee that was going to produce a report on all of this was 9-11. And I remember that coming out and it was a book. It was a long book and I owned it and I read it. But there wasn't the same attention around the work of the committee while the committee was doing its work. And I think we're being very poorly served by the incentives that uh, I think both Sam and David highlighted that exist for people to perform for cameras in a way that doesn't help point towards the truth, that points instead towards Yuval's diagnosis of what is wrong with so many of our institutions, that they become platforms on which people stand and perform rather than which perform very important work. This is one of the things when I was looking, you know, the committee should finish up its work in September and they're planning a multimedia aspect of this, um, which is which is very, very strange. Um these sorts of sorts of fact finding commissions are very very important because what we saw on January 6 were cascading levels of failure of law enforcement of the FBI um, to you know we there are all sorts of precautions that we take to secure our nation's institutions and for this sort of spectacular failure to occur um, is something that needs to be investigated and there needs to be constructive recommendations that come out of the committee to address um, 
that. Uh, Congressman Meyer has is one of the one of the few Republicans on the on the committee. Uh, he is uh, the rep here in Grand Rapids. Um, you know, is a uh, you know I've listened to a number of interviews about him. You know, there is a politicization of the committee that he will readily acknowledge, but there is also genuine work to be done, and all of this theater takes away from that. The more we focus on the sensational, you know, the lead item for the presentation uh, last week was that there was new footage as if it was like an extended director's cut of a film that, you know, we can now we can now view. And it's like that footage is relevant to the degree that it conveys information on which we can act now to prevent incidents like this in the future. And we've lost sight of that. And we've been, and the committee itself is indulging in elements of this spectacle. And I don't, don't think that's constructive for the work of the committee or the future of the country. I think, I think the only thing I'd like to say is that it's uh, not unique in this moment in the political class. This is a sign of the culture. This is Neil Postman's uh, uh, dictum that we're amusing ourselves to death. The Republicans did do it with Benghazi, even if the 9-11 commission was a little more dry. But watching um, Congress people be clown themselves with grandstanding, if, if you go back to some of the attempts of uh, both Republican and Democrat Congress and Senate folks to grill Lloyd Blankfein or Goldman Sachs post-financial crisis, you'd be hard-pressed to see anything more embarrassing in the history of American political theater. Um, the notion of uh, any member of this Congress, Senate or House, talking about fiscal responsibility to any member of the private sector ever is, in my mind, theatrical and amusing. It's all driven by grandstanding. And I agree with you. The topic here is serious. The way they're doing it presents an entertainment value and wrong incentives, to Eric's point. Um, and yet I, I'm not sure this is at all limited to what this moment is. It's a sign of the times we live in. Well, speaking of signs of the times that we live in, I have... It, it, we get these arguments for uh, over the last number of years, particularly from people histrionic over the last uh, six or seven years. Uh, you know, things are as bad as they've ever been in this country. We could talk about national divorces and, a, and a, you know, a cold civil war and all of that. And one of the points that I've always made to rebut what I think is is general hysterics in in, in almost all cases, although there's a, you know there are some very true underlying. Uh, fundamentals there that I have always found troubling. Uh, I think we've talked around and about a lot of them on the in the last uh, ten or fifteen minutes. But one of the things that I've always pointed to uh, is, you know, you go back and you look at the the late nineteen sixties and in the nineteen seventies, and one of the things that they experienced back then that we have not been experiencing or had not been experiencing was political violence. January sixth is a clear example of political violence. Um, I think the riots that we saw in uh, May of 2020 around the George Floyd killing is a clear example of political violence. Uh, the attempt on numerous congressmen's life at the congressional baseball game is a clear example of political violence. And I think one of the things that I should be amazed by, um, but probably shouldn't actually be amazed by, is how this story of a man traveling to Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home 
armed with an intent to assassinate him has been largely ignored, but nonetheless is a clear example. I mean, you you look back at the 1960s, you have the assassination of John F. Kennedy, you have the assassination of uh, Medgar Evers, you have the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., you have the assassination of Robert Kennedy. And, you know, uh, thank God that we are not experiencing anything to that level. Um, the way that we seem to be ready to tear each other and ourselves apart over much more trivial things right now. Um, if we were experiencing anything like the assassination of a, a president of the United States or high profile uh, leaders like that, um, it, it would be a very dark time indeed. But nonetheless, a, a man was in front of Brett Kavanaugh's house with an attempt to kill him. And, you know, on one level, he was interdicted almost immediately. He, he saw that there was a police presence there. He moved in a different direction, and then he called in to say that he was dealing with suicidal thoughts. And it was after the fact that it was discovered that, you know, being upset about Uvalde and pending decisions from the court on abortion and guns, uh, that he had an intent to kill a Supreme Court justice. And yet it just is kind of an afterthought. Um, and I, I – of the things I genuinely worry about, this is one that I think has just an ability to break people in a way that we're not giving enough credence to. If he had – and thank God he wasn't – been successful, the, the, the resulting chaos from that would have been epochal. And that is one of the things that I think truly does frighten me. If we, we've seen too much political violence already, and I fear it escalates to uh, a point where we're talking about something more similar to the 60s and the 70s, again, to draw another comparison that we really don't want to make between now and those decades. Well, if you think about January the 6th, which you, you, we've talked about a little bit, you know, it was a type of assault on the transfer of political power. And the responsibility of Congress to certify electoral college votes, which is its responsibility under the Constitution. But it is striking to see the nonchalance with which uh, what you just described about what was effectively an attempt by a person, albeit one who we are told had some significant mental health issues, to assassinate a sitting member of the Supreme Court of the United States with all that would mean in terms of um, the balance between conservatives and progressives on the court, et cetera, et cetera. But if you read most, frankly, most media reports, you'd think that this was just a sort of routine piece of information, right? Yeah, so the, head, the headline in the New York Times is, and I quote, Armed man traveled to Justice Kavanaugh's home to kill him, officials right. said. Right, and it was on page 20. It was on page 20 of the New York Times. President Biden has said nothing as of yesterday afternoon about this. Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she, the House would eventually, eventually get around to considering a Senate bill to add security for the families of Supreme Court justices. Now, does anyone think that President Biden or Speaker Pelosi would be reacting in this way if it had been, say, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who had been the target. So this casual acceptance or, or this type of normalisation 
of this type of violence by, I think, large parts of the left. Now, there are some people on the right who fall into the same camp. But I think this sort of normalization of acceptance of violence by alleged moderate Democrats (laughs) – is something, I think, to be genuinely concerned about. Um, we still have protesters picketing the houses of several justices, despite the fact that there are federal laws and local laws that actually prohibit that type of behaviour. We have left-wing groups publishing the home addresses of justices. We have one left-wing group, Ruth Centas, it's called, advising its followers last week that Justice Amy Coney Barrett goes to church every day and that her children attend a particular school. I mean, this is the level to which things have gotten. And the fact that there aren't more people on the left, or the moderate left, the center left, whatever you want to call them, who are saying, look, you may disagree with Supreme Court decisions, but that is no excuse for behaving in this particular way vis-a-vis the persons of Supreme Court justices and their families, the fact that they, so many people on the left are unwilling to say this is wrong and we, would, we should never tolerate this regardless of the perceived political leanings or the perceived philosophical leanings of people on the Supreme Court. The fact that there has been very little said from the left about this I think is deeply concerning and a sign of just how bad the polarization is now. David, I want to give you the last word. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with Sam. And I would I, the key thing in what he said is I'm willing to say it because I don't think either Sam or I or you guys believe that the moderate left, even including President Biden, I'm not calling him a moderate, but I'm saying I don't think any of the people we're accusing of silence here or condemning for silence actually don't believe that it's wrong and abhorrent and problematic to the core. It's the silence that's so appalling. And this is why... The only solution is courage and moral clarity. Um, I think it's worse if they do believe this is wrong and to not say anything versus those radicals that actually feel that they have some righteous cause in in going to extreme measures because of how important uh, Roe v. Wade is to them or the environment or whatever the issue at hand is, BOM, and you think back to the summer of 2020. Um, we're living in a moment where there's only one reason for them to not say anything, is that they're afraid of what the most extreme part of their base will think. And this is a problem on the right and the left. The lack of courage to speak up about things we know to be wrong because we're afraid of how it will be taken or how it will be responded to by um, a particular constituents. It's a sign of moral cowardice and and both sides ism is itself a grave sin and right now we have just simply got to condemn political violence and threats and any french revolution behavior needs to be condemned regardless of the political hat being worn let's call it a wrap there Thank you so much to David Bonson for joining us today. Go get his book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. If more people go get David's book, hopefully we don't have to spend the first 30 minutes of a show like this discussing the economic problems that is currently facing the country. Can't recommend it enough. But David, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. 
Thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, we appreciate it, but we want you to look in the show notes. You'll find a link to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind, or you can just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to David Bonson. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.